Welcome to the Housewife of Horrors podcast. And welcome back to another exciting episode of Housewife of Horrors. This week we have another onion of a case. I know I keep saying that, but once again, have I ever lied about it? And this one really is an onion. So before we get into the layers of this one, Evil from 3B Video, my ever faithful companion is here with us. Say hello, Evil. Greetings. I do want to say that uh, we have a few requests that have come in. I have gotten all of those and hopefully replied to you. Let's get on to this crazy case. It was a couple years ago on Investigation Discovery. I watched this like five-part miniseries called Village of the Damned. It is about the town of Dryden in upstate New York. It's located about an hour south of Syracuse, if that gives you any kind of <laughs> geographical markers of where is that? That's where Sean Michaels got beat up by one or 20,000 different thugs outside of a nightclub back in 1996. In Syracuse? Syracuse, New York, yeah. Oh, guess I missed it. This story, it takes place from 1989 to 1999, and we have a serious body count in this one. And I thought I had my little list of, oh, here it is. I do have the list. I had to get my little pieces of paper out. By my count, we have a body count of, well, I'm not going to give it away. We'll do the totals at the end. Without further ado, December 22nd, 1989. This is about the Harris family, Warren and Dolores. Dolores goes by the nickname of Dodie, so we'll be calling her Dodie through this. Shelby, who's 15, and Mark, 11. Warren is off at work. The family is getting ready for Christmas, doing up the Christmas tree, string of popcorn, you know, that kind of thing. Dodie's sister, Sharon, calls her to talk about what the plan for Christmas was when Dodie sees a man walking around her house. Wait, what? Yeah, she sees a man walking around her house While she's on the phone just... yes <laughs> so she doesn't say anything to her sister about the suspicious man but how this is known is somebody else sees him but we will get into that the Ooh. call ends and she goes back to decorating with her kids the doorbell rings dody opens the door and she sees a man that she doesn't recognize the next day december 23rd the harris neighbor calls police because there's an alarm going off over at the harris house sheriff john bino arrives and doesn't initially hear the alarm but he still knocks on the door while he's standing at the door he finally does hear the beeping he announces himself as local police and walks into the harris home he smells gasoline and as he makes his way through the house he finds a gas can on the living room floor he goes to call for backup when he sees that the phone is like yanked out of the wall so he radios in for backup because things are just really sus at this point the sheriff makes his way up the stairs the first bedroom he checks there's a burned body in there it's the body of 15 year old shelby harris and he did say this one disturbing fact that she was tied up but it was with ribbons from her hair and like her prom dress sash so she was tied up with part of her prom dress and stuff for her hair I'm, i'm still just hung up on sheriff bino whatever he was like really sweet through this whole series i loved that 
he I'm sure was sheriff of this town. I'm sure he's gooberish nice and everything, but like, I don't know how I could, I could not take a Sheriff Bino seriously. Apparently, in addition to that disturbing fact, she was also assaulted, shot, and her body was set on fire, I'm sure, in some attempt to cover up the tracks. Hopefully the whole house would have burned down. I think that's what they were hoping for. The remaining family members were in a different room, and the killer, he hooded all three of them, so the dad ended up coming home to this. He hooded all three of them, and then shot them execution style, and then, like Shelby, they were all set on fire. Christmas 1989 in this town, this kicks it off. We've got four people executed and set on fire at Christmas. Shots and nobody heard four gunshots going off? Was this this Amityville? The thing is, is they're kind of spaced out. The alarm, I'm sure the neighbor heard that because, you know, he said he called and said he heard an alarm. But I don't know if maybe he heard that just because it was going on so long. And he finally was like, what is that? As opposed to a quick gunshot, how quick? all of these people were killed like if he killed one person and then waited a couple hours and then shot another one maybe thinking oh well somebody hears the shots they'll send police out but if police don't come out here quick then we'll just kind of do this every hour on the hour sort of a thing i don't know they were all just hooded shot killed burned up so investigators arrive and inform the sheriff that it's the whole family that has been killed. They don't have any prints, hair. They don't have any forensics, except they do have a Shit. make on the gun that was used. Forensics hardly exists in 1989. Right. So the most they have is like once they get a matching gun, they can do some ballistics. The town is freaking terrified at this point. People start locking their doors. Parents aren't letting their kids out to go play anywhere. And the fear is real because everyone in this town is like the Harris family. This family getting brutally murdered really hit close to home. The Harris family was just kind of this run-of-the-mill family like a lot of other families in this town. Had two kids. They had jobs. They had a nice house. They picket fences and barbecues. turkey on Christmas. I don't know. They were just regular people. I've never eaten turkey on Christmas. Lots of people do. We never did. Well, neither did I, so. Ah, Not that common, is it? Since there isn't a lot to go on at this juncture, they start questioning neighbors. One of the neighbors that lived down the way, her name's Alicia. She told police in the afternoon of the 22nd, she was on her way home and it was beginning to snow. And she's driving down the road and Where? she drives by this guy on a bicycle. Where's this at again? Dryden, New York. New York, okay. Upstate, an hour from Syracuse, where Triple H got beat up by 140 people, that remember? Was, no, that was Shawn Michaels. Sorry, <laughs> wrong wrestler. That was yeah. like... Same click that's like like fucking seven minutes ago we talked about that Uh, okay i've had four people brutally murdered at this point i know that's that and bino have taken precedence i was like wait where was this again at should we restart this whole thing no 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 okay i was just just trying to think like weather and stuff like riding bikes is like Upstate New York, it's December. It's yeah, snowing. It's, okay, yeah. So Alicia, the neighbor down the way, tells police that on the afternoon of the 22nd, she was on her way home and it was beginning to snow. They drive by this guy who's riding on a bicycle. It kind of seemed a little out of the ordinary for her. So she slows to a creep, thinking that they might know who was riding this bike in a snowstorm. She says she got a good look at his face and she tells police that it was a black man because it was uncommon for that area. They just... They didn't have a lot of black people in that area. 
So it's an unfamiliar guy, somebody she doesn't know, a black guy on a bicycle in a snowstorm. What a different, like, life than me. Drive past that dude bicycling in a snowstorm. Like, we should pick him up. Drive past me like, I'm a fucking idiot. Who rides a bike in a snowstorm? She said that I didn't type everything down. She said verbatim, but she did say that she was looking to see if she knew who it was. I'm sure if she knew who it was, she was, I mean, this is kind of a small town. Back in the late 80s, it was probably safe to give a fellow townsperson a ride home, especially in a snowstorm. I'm sure that's what her logic was. She said that he was wearing a parka and she did not know who he was. So there, he's unfamiliar. She didn't know who he was. A different neighbor tells police that she sees the same man, but they saw him at the front door of the Harris house. And I'm sure that's when she was on the phone with her sister. She sees this strange man. The neighbor sees the strange man at the door. Well, police start piecing together the events of that day. They think it's a robbery gone bad because the Harris family did have a gift shop on the property. They had kind of, you know, a little picturesque place and a little gift shop where you can get souvenirs. It's Christmas time. It's easy cash. The man on the bike, they think that he played under kindness. And then when he gets in the house, the attack began. And then later that day, Warren came home from work and was subdued in some manner. And that's when he assaulted and shot and hooded and all of that happened. It's December 24th and the suspects are using the Harris family credit cards. They went on a $1,300 shopping spree with expensive jewelry, TV, whole bunch of stuff they got. It's 1989 so surveillance isn't what it is today and police start questioning the cashiers about this spending spree. Police now know that they are looking for a black male 25 to 30 years old and an elderly black woman and they now have composites of these suspects. So just uh, for frame of reference, in today's money, that's $3,014. Yeah, that's... That's That's a fuck of a shopping spree. For me, she had $1,000 of a fuck of a shopping spree. It's now late January 1990. It's a few days later. We're into the 90s. Yes. Yahoo. Three weeks after the murders, tips identifying the suspects are coming in, and they are identified as Michael King and his mom, Shirley. He has has a prior record of robbery and other crimes and Shirley has no record. She's worked a couple jobs. She's just kind of a regular old lady. And one of those jobs, she was a cleaning lady. This kind of takes me back to there's no prints, no hair. So police theorize that he called his mom why he was there like robbing the place and killing everybody and she showed up to help him clean up. I don't know. I thought you were going to go up like some Kingsman shit of like she was uh, like working as like a cleaner for the house and like, oh, that's how we can get in and take care of stuff because no one will think twice looking at us because no one looks or thinks twice about the cleaners of the hell no she wasn't their cleaner she was just a cleaner it's now february 2nd 1990 and not even 10 miles from the harris house two-year-old eliza may bush is reported missing by her mother christine lane who is 24 so now we have these four dead people we have suspects on the loose they're trying to find out and in the midst of all of this a two-year-old has now gone missing investigator John Huther, he is the first on the scene to question Christine. She said that they were taking out the trash. She 
forgot a bag, she runs back in super quick, runs back out, and when she returns, Eliza is gone, and she found one of her pink mittens in the driveway. Because remember, it was a snowstorm a few days earlier, so it's still winter up there. Search parties are out in the snow looking for this sweet, pretty baby. Investigators are questioning neighbors, everybody in the apartment. Nobody has seen a thing. Night falls with the snowy temperatures, and the search is called off for the night, unfortunately. The next day, February 3rd, police question Christine again for more details. Maybe there was something she overlooked or kind of forgot in the heat of the moment sort of a thing. And detectives take note that she isn't crying. She's not emotional. She's just very matter of fact. But at this point, police are still believing her. And he says that. He's like, you know, we didn't really have any reason not to at this point. Two days later on February 5th, it's four days into the investigation of Christine. Well, they get Eliza's biological father, Greg, and Christine's boyfriend, Kevin Dexter, are brought in for polygraphs. Greg passes with flying colors. Kevin is next to take his. He also passes, and Christine passes. Because this could possibly be a kidnapping, the FBI is now called in to help. The town is already scared from the brutal murders from just like weeks before. And now this two-year-old, the fear is really, really setting in. People are like, you know, where's lightning going to strike next in this town? Who's it going to be? People are scared. And for good reason, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I... I got nothing yet. (laughs) We'll just cut that segment out. Town folks, they are beginning to think whoever murdered the Harris family probably also took the baby. It's a few days later, February 7th. Police surround. We're going to go back to the Harris because these these two cases kind of play out all at the same time. So this is all unraveling two different investigations, same town. So police surround Michael King's place. One part of the house his mom lives in and the other half he lives in with his girlfriend and their one-year-old baby. He's standing facing the door holding the gun when the police kick the door in and of course he goes to fire. They fire upon him. He dies at the scene. The mom, the girlfriend, and the baby are all safe but Shirley is taken into custody for her part in, I'm not gonna say murders, but she was brought in for using stolen credit cards definitely. She does admit to using the credit cards but she doesn't admit or confess to being in the house even if it was just to clean up. So she is using the credit cards, but she says she wasn't nowhere near the house. On the same day, it's day six into the Eliza investigation, and Christine receives a package, and inside is Eliza's other pink mitten. But something doesn't sit right about the mitten to police, and they go and get to the bottom of it. (laughs) All I could think is, man, they could totally just utilize that Shirley, you can't be serious. Yes, we are being serious, and we can call you Shirley. So now it is February 8th, Eliza's mother, Christine Lane, goes onto the news and beg and plead for Eliza's safe return. Christine is crying and she's very emotional through words. She's emotional this time, unlike the last time. She's giving him a show. Yeah. Police tell Christine that we aren't sure this is an abduction because there's no 
no ransom demands have been made. So they're suspicious about this mitten. So they're setting up a trap and they tell Christine that, hey, we don't think this is a real deal because there's been no ransom made. Usually a couple days after somebody's kidnapped, some sort of demands are made, whether it's financial or whatever the demands should be. Amazingly enough, the next day, ransom demands were made. It's February 15th. Ah, this is the day after Valentine's Day. No better time to get past the holidays than hit you with the ransom demand. You want to get over the holiday season entirely. February 15th, Christine is brought in again for questioning, and FBI is in on this questioning. They confront her about someone seeing her mail a package similar to the one that the mitten came in. That's really making that shit up. They said that somebody in town saw her mailing this package. I believe they can just make up whatever they want when they're doing this. Uh, oh, totally. Stuff to try to well, whether you. they did or not, it works, because Christine claims that, okay, this is when the shit starts to really come out. She, I guess, realizes, holy shit, they're on to me. She claims that Eliza suffocated in her sleep. She goes on to tell them, and I had to write all this down. I had to quote this because this is what she confessed to. She goes, she was like that when I found her. It was about 8.30. I put her to bed. I heard her in there playing, so I hollered in for her to lay down. And then I went into the bathroom, and when I came out, the light was shining into her bedroom. I can see that she was wrapped up in a blanket, so I went to unravel it so tight. She was cold. She was blue. And I was tired. I gave her mouth to mouth. Oh, and I tried. Sorry. <laughs> I, I was just tired. <laughs> I apologize. And I tried. I gave her mouth to mouth, but I couldn't see her chest rising. So I went out and started to call. I And I started dialing. And I, and then I put down the phone. Yeah, that's the end of that. When There's, a- there's no follow-up of, why? Hold on. I, I, well? I'm kidding to that. I don't have the patience for it. Get to it then. When asked why she did that, she said she didn't want her family to think that she was a bad person. And then she takes the police to the woods near her apartment and she shows them where Eliza's body was hidden under some branches and brush in the snowy woods. Kevin, the current boyfriend, and this poor guy, like watching him in this part of, the, he's in like the second episode. This this guy he still, know? he knows some stuff, but he, he wasn't around when none of this happened. He's an innocent bystander. He's not like part of this. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm asking. I was like, is he, is he also waiting for ransom demands? Is he on like wanting to know what's going on kind of a thing? Well, Kevin, I'm getting to that again. Well, I'll just Ke- quit talking entirely then. Kevin went to see Christine after she confessed to finding her dead. And he asks her straight up, what in the hell were you thinking? So now he knows everything. He's confronting her. She said, I almost told you a few times, a couple of times and stuff, but never did. She still said that she didn't do anything. Do anything besides, I guess, discovering her dead. Apparently, she kind of kept it secret over a few days and she was trying to tell him but she never did surprisingly christine is allowed to go to eliza's funeral this is really horrible i had a hard time with this part she's kneeling at the casket and kevin knelt down next to her and through her tears she says this is some hard shit here she says why couldn't she just why couldn't she just lay down that night and gone to sleep little shit 
just so happens that an officer is like standing two feet behind her and he hears her say this. That's when he brings out the billy club. Gotcha, <laughs> bitch. Pops over the noggin. And they have a beat down at a funeral. <laughs> it's, it's Pet cemetery all over again, but with justice. It's now November 1990, and Christine is found guilty of second-degree obstruction of governmental administration, third-degree reporting of an incident, and second-degree manslaughter, which is like reckless or unintentional killing of a person without lawful justification. I had to look that up just to make sure that I was correct on what I thought it was. She was sentenced to, quote, an indeterminate prison term of 5 to 15 years on the manslaughter and she got a year and three months for the other charges. So, like, she's looking at, what, 17 years at best? At best. There's a little poem. You know, I wrote this whole poem down. It's on the back of her headstone, and I just, I can't read this because it's... I mean, you cannot read it now. (sighs) I hope I can get through this. But there's a poem on the back of Eliza's headstone, and it's titled Answers. Where did you come from, baby dear? I came from nowhere into here. Where did you get those eyes of blue? I took a piece of heaven when I came through. Where did you get that golden hair? I stole some ray of sunshine away from up there. Where did you get that roughish grin? Oh, God gave me that from away back when. Did you come down here on the wings of a dove? No, I thumbed a ride with Don Cupid on his arrow of love. How long do you think you will stay? I hope to be here for many a day. And for whom do you love the best of all? That difficult answer, because I love you all. Eliza was 17 days away from her third birthday when she passed away. Sorry about that, everybody. (laughs) Unfortunately, this story, it ends horribly. And in early 2000, Christine was released from prison early and she no longer lives in the Dryden area. And that's probably a good thing. Oh, I'm going to have to edit out all my sniffling. (laughs) All right. So we're back to November 1990 and we just had the sweet baby's funeral, but it's also Shirley's trial. At Shirley's trial, trooper David Harding testifies to lifting a print off of that gas can that was on the living room floor. When he first walked in the house, the other investigator, he found that gas can. Well, they have claimed that they have lifted a print from that gas can, and that print matches Shirley King. Shirley, you cannot be serious. Shirley, I am. So, she is found guilty of burglary, arson, hindering prosecution, criminal possession of stolen property, and forgery. And she is sentenced 18 to 44 years. Wow. Okay, uh, I gotta say this. This is fucked up. I mean, this is 1990, and I still feel like this would be a thing today. But Christine Bitch over here kills a pretty sweet little two-year-old and gets what, fucking 17 years max? And she only did, like, what, 10 of that? Because she was prosecuted in 1990. She got out in early 2000, so she only did a fucking decade. This lady here, they don't have no murder. It's just burglary, arson. I mean, arson could lead to murder, but if it did lead to murder, they would have charged her with murder in this. Other than this, they just have her on, like, forgery and stolen property and shit, and she's getting 18 to 44 years? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. I think it's because she's black. I was just gonna go with uh, we value money more than life here Uh, yeah whatever 
It's now 1992 and claims started coming out against New York state troopers and about their unethical practices. One of those troopers named was the testifying trooper in the Shirley King case, David Harding. The Department of Justice starts investigating that troopers were falsifying fingerprint evidence. This adds reasonable doubt to his court testimony that he lifted Shirley's print off of that gas can. Her attorneys file an immediate motion and have her conviction overturned. They were successful. All charges but the forgery was dropped. She was released in August of 1992. I did do some little more research into this and I found out she would pass away in 2015 at the age of 80. And then to add a little more to this, this whole David Harding thing, I had to find this out. In December, after all this DOJ investigation goes down, David Harding pleads guilty to planting evidence and perjury and was sentenced to four and a half years. Yeah, fuck you, David Harding. It's now the summer of 1993 and Kristen Clark is another resident of Dryden and she is working at the Dryden Food Market. A lady named Colleen is her co-worker there and she said when they first met they didn't really hit it off but you know how the story goes you don't you really hit it off they end up being best friends well they did end up being best friends. She was dating a guy named Paul and they had a really good friend Scott who was hanging out with them all the time. Okay Okay, so Colleen and Paul are dating. Kristen and Colleen's boyfriend notice there's some kind of chemistry going on with Scott and Colleen. It's now August 1993 and Colleen confides in Kristen that she is unhappy with Paul and she wants to be with Scott. Paul is crushed over being dumped and he's starting to call Colleen, begging her to come back, showing up at places. It's just... In a, in a feature film, that would be a romantic comedy. Well, Kristen gets her first apartment and Colleen is her roommate. They're all excited about the good times they're going to have. Life is really taking off for them. They're both young. They got these jobs. They have their independence. Well, August 14th of 1993, Scott, Colleen, and Kristen are all hanging out at Scott's place. They're sleeping off a long night of fun when Paul walks into the house because the front door wasn't locked. You know, people were scared, but it's been a few years since things happened. So apparently Scott didn't feel as scared as some people and left his door unlocked. And Paul walks in. There's two couches in the living room. Christy's on one and Scott's on the other. Kristen wakes up to Scott being stabbed by Paul like she's watching it. They lock eyes. And then he ends up bolting. So Colleen and Kristen, they rush to his aid, call 911. Unfortunately, Scott passed away due to his injuries. About an hour after the stabbing took place, Paul's family convinces him to turn himself in. So Paul does turn himself in. He completely confesses to the stabbing of Scott. He was moving in on my girl. I was jealous. I was crushed. This guy was blinded by love, I guess. Something. And he's like, yeah, I totally stabbed him. He is charged with second degree murder. The town paper, they're calling it a lover's triangle leads to fatal stabbing. And that is a direct quote from one of their headlines. 
And in early 1994, Paul's trial begins and he is found guilty of second degree murder. He is given 15 years to life. If he confessed, why is there even a trial? Because he still is entitled to due process of law because of his rights or something was violated in the process of the investigation or if bullied during interrogation to be forced into saying that shit. They they have to, so, it's due process. It's part of his fucking rights. So I'm afraid to ask this guy, I feel like you're going to give me another, well, I'm getting ready to fucking tell you, but is this just like a, a cursed town or is yes. all this stuff just, are all these things tied together? Or is this just a, a town of just constant tragedy? that keeps popping up every few years? That's a good question. A lot of people say both. Okay, I was just wondering, I'm like, how I'm in my head, like... I don't personally, I don't think they're connected except for the fact that all the common denominator for all these is they all live in the same town. Okay, I was just wondering if there's like just a rash of things going on in this town. I'm like, all right, so how the fuck does this fatal four-way of couples relate back to a lady that that killed her two-year-old that relates back to a family that was murdered? And I'm like, god dang, you were bullshitting with Onion. It's like, this is just, what a mass conspiracy. No, it's not one killer killing all these people. It's oh, it's okay. it's unfortunately multiple killers killing multiple people. I, I didn't know if it was like some identity shit or what. Like everyone's gonna realize they all had the same birthday or something and kind of a thing. Okay, so, so it's, just, it's a curse to town then. I do want to finish the Kristen, Scott, and Paul storyline. So kind of like I did with Shirley King dying in 2015 and then going back to 1990. I'm going to kind of jump ahead to finish this story. But it's 2014 and Kristen is still living in Dryden. She is getting her nails done when the nail tech, also a friend of hers, tells her, Hey, Paul has served 20 years and he's been released from prison and he's now living in Dryden. 2017, Paul marries his girlfriend Alex and they do have a son together. He had a baby boy named Liam. The show lets Paul tell his side of the story. In 2017 he sits down with them. He says that he believed that for months before the murder while him and Colleen was together that she was hiding something from him. He felt that Colleen was seeing Scott behind his back and once he confronted her she admitted that his suspicions were right. He was broken hearted and in my opinion I that definitely clouded his judgment. He started drinking and using drugs to deal with the pain. Well, he sees Scott's truck on the way to go get his car fixed at his brother's house that day and he just, he lost his shit. That's when he gets the knife from his car and he admits that he was hurting and he wasn't thinking straight when he went into Scott's house. He tells the same story about stabbing Scott and Kristen waking up to it. They have the same fucking story. Like, she wakes up to seeing it. He's like, yep, she woke up. I was stabbing him. This is how it went down. But he adds a momentary thought. When they locked eyes, she always wondered if he wanted to stab her. And he actually admits, he goes, yeah, I had a momentary thought of stabbing Kristen. Well, she didn't know that. So they played that footage for her. They play that footage for her. And she hears the him say, yeah, I had a momentary thought about stabbing her. He went on to apologize what he had done, but she feels that he doesn't deserve forgiveness and that he shouldn't be happy and having a life and all of that stuff. So I can kind of see where he's been accountable and done his time. But then again, I see her point of view that Scott's not here to be doing this shit. Why should you be? 
sounds borderline like whatever movie it is where a dude kills a guy and he's burying him in the yard and then sees someone sees him digging the hole so you flashed him digging two holes then he sees someone else see him digging two holes he's gotta dig three holes that's why in the movie casino he goes you dig the holes then you go out there because you don't want to be digging holes all night and burying all these people you have that shit prepared that takes a long time to dig a hole that deep well that finishes up their storyline unfortunately they didn't say what happened to colleen like if she still lives in town but Kristen still lives there apparently paul does too he's married has a kid he's just kind of living his everyday life at this point we're going to go back to the timeline where we left off at paul's trial in early 1994 it's now december 30th 1994 and this is the date of the next incident but there is a backstory that brings us to december 1994 jennifer lung and sherry fitz went to the same high school in the early 1990s and they were the best of friends they were having fun in high school hanging out with friends typical high school stuff they had a friend named jonathan merchant but everybody but he called him JP, JP Merchant. He was part of the friend group and he would go to a lot of the same hangouts and parties. Their junior year, which was 1991, JP and Sherry started dating. He started at this point displaying some violent and controlling behaviors, but Sherry didn't say much in details about this behavior. May 1st, 1991, it's time for the junior prom and they have been dating for seven months. They are all out getting like tuxes and flowers, the prom thing, and Sherry drops JP off and then Jennifer. When she gets to Jennifer's house, she asks if she can use the phone. She uses the phone and has like this kind of huddled secretive conversation and then she just immediately leaves. Well, later that night, Jennifer is babysitting. She gets a call and this phone call tells her that Sherry committed suicide. She was just 16 years old and her 17th birthday was the next day. Friends of Sherry want to know what happened that night. Friends start asking questions, especially Jennifer, because her and Sherry were making plans, like college plans, and they were going to get rooms together and stuff like that. It just, it didn't make sense, and JP is acting really aggressively defensive. I didn't do anything! Kinda. I mean, he's just kind of putting off this uber-defensive attitude. Well, Jennifer and JP graduate in 1992, and after that, she knew he was still in the area going to college, and she still had her suspicions as to what happened that night Sherry died. Fast forward, it's now 1994. JP is 20 years old, college student, and he's dating a girl, a high school senior named Amber Starr. That's a cute name. Her father is the local football coach, Steven Starr, who, you know, small towns, they talk about Friday night lights and stuff. Well, Steven Starr was like the coach of the team that every Friday night, everybody in town was there. This guy was loved. I mean, you can't not be like, a legend in a town with your name Steven Starr. Right, and he he had a great family, he good husband, fabulous father. Amber doesn't know about Sherry's suicide. Her and JP, they're at this diner one time. JP goes to the bathroom and she's kind of just sitting there at the counter and one of the teenage waitress girls, she's like, hey, you know he dated Sherry Fitz and she like killed herself. And when I say killed herself, I have quotes around it. And you need to be careful because 
he ain't right. And of course, she's warned. Amber does kind of heed the warning. Well, it's September of 1994 and Amber is scared of JP and she breaks up with him. And Stephen is worried for the safety of his family because JP started stalking Amber. He's showing up at her high school. He's making fucking threats. She's hanging out with her friends at the local ice cream place and he's rolling through the parking lot, glaring at her. And Stephen finally, one day when he shows up at one of her cheerleading practices, Stephen confronts JP, but he's kind of takes a gentle approach like, hey, you know, there's plenty of fish in the sea. Why don't you kind of move on with your life and you got to stop this. He, so he wasn't like threatening when he him. get the fuck out of here. Right. He he did try to handle this with kid gloves about leaving his daughter alone. You don't get the fuck out of here. I'm going to introduce you to my left, my right, and I call them my shooting stars. We're back in the timeline now, and it's December 30th, 1994. It's sometime in the 7 a.m. hour, and JP breaks into the star house with a shotgun. I'll tell you, the reenactment for this was terrifying, because imagine like, oh, Saturday morning, I'm going to sleep in, and you kind of toss and turn, and you wake up, and there's a shotgun in your face. He orders Amber out of the bed, and she walks out of her room. Okay, right outside her bedroom door is the staircase to go up to the third floor, so so as she walks out, JP hasn't made it out of her room yet. He's like two steps behind. Dad, I guess, hears the confrontation. Anyway, he's standing on the staircase. He pushes Amber as she comes out the door to run and kind of blitzes in between the middle of them. And JP opens fire on him. So he pushes her. He tells her to run. As she runs, JP shoots. The first shot got Steven in the rib cage, and he was still alive. And the second shot was the... A fatal shot he shot him in the head this one is a little hard too so amber and her mom and her sister get out of the house and make it to the neighbor's house their neighbor calls police and jp of course leaves before the police get there and police uh, they're trying to find him before this situation gets worse his car was located at a cemetery in Homer, New York, which is 25 minutes north of Dryden. Police then located JP. He killed himself. I was going to say, like, I was just cleaning my gun at their house and it went off. I didn't do anything. Well, they see his car at the cemetery. They find him dead from a self gun and, uh, you know, self-inflicted gunshot wound. That's it. Easy for you to say. Here's the thing. He killed himself on Sherry's grave. So this only adds gas to the speculation fire about JP being involved in Sherry's I'm going to say death. Speculation. I was like, you know, speculation about that. I don't think Sherry killed herself because, okay, maybe some people. Did they say how she did that? No, they did not go into it. I think it's probably because she was a minor. They didn't go into it, which I don't really need to know that detail. Oh, I'm just asking you to see if it sounds like super, like, fishy shit. Like, oh, clearly that's not something you could do by yourself. Some 20-year-old dipshit had to do that. Oh, you mean like the girl? who jumped in the trash chute yeah exactly like like right when the macho man killed the lady with the with the trash chute same setup here okay so so what about the community they are just fucking stunned and devastated and scared and it's just a whirlwind of emotion as soon as they kind of start to recover here comes another then they kind of get a little bit of time they start to recover and here comes another one everyone who has died so far has had roots in the community and this is just just a serious shock to those roots it's like the von erics of small towns it's now august 20th 1995 
and William Pace, 19 years old, dies in a car accident. When the driver was rounding a corner, they lost control and hit a tree and he succumbed to his injuries. This is counted as part of it, even though his death wasn't a horrible, gruesome murder. He was still a beloved member of the community that unfortunately passed away in a tragic accident. And his death kind of plays into the next one. So that was August of 1995. September of 1996, so like a year later, the brother of William Pace, who died, Billy Pace is what they called him, Scott, he's 17, he's on his way home from football practice when a tree trimming truck was backing out of a driveway and they collided into the truck. Both of these brothers died like this family, they lost their oldest son and like a year later they lose their other son. How fast is this truck backing out of a driveway? I think they were backing out and maybe the driver wasn't paying attention that there was a truck backing out. And that's when they hit the truck. And I mean, you know, a car wreck, it doesn't take much to succumb to some kind of internal bleeding or head injury that could unfortunately take your life. And the mid-90s are still like not really taking a seatbelt super seriously. Okay, so that last death occurred on September 10th of 96. It's September 24th of 96, and we get to the next story of this town. The story of Donna and Ed Bailey. And a little backstory for that was Donna and Ed, they met at work. They started off as friends. Eventually, they fell in love. They went on to have three boys. In 1985, the family moves to the outskirts of Dryden. This is when Donna starts to notice that Ed was different, like a darkness, a fear. Some kind of paranoia has come over him. That's the stench of Dryden. Uh, Yeah, I don't disagree with that. He's also in the National Guard, and he told Donna that if anything ever happened to him, don't believe what you were told. The National Guard was trying to kill him. He then tells her that he, quote, and this is a direct quote, senses evil in Dryden, end quote. No kidding on that one. So his strange behavior only increases. He wants Donna, and this is like some weird stuff she explained. He wanted Donna to take down the yellow curtains because he felt that they were a symbol of evil. The TV was sending him messages. He wouldn't tell Donna the nature of the messages. And he was seeing big black crows that were following him and watching him. This goes on for months, and she is scared for her life and the life of her children, as any good mother would be. She finally convinces him to get some help, and he goes. But what she thinks is going to be weeks in a mental institution, maybe even months, because some people, they kind of go away for a little while. They got to, you know, hash shit out. It, no, it's just days later. Ed shows back up saying, the doctor says there's nothing wrong with him. I'm home. Everything's fine. Don't. You You escaped, didn't you? Shit. Okay, so now we're back in the storyline, and it's early 1996. The family is at the park for the day, having a picnic, enjoying the day, and that's when they meet this other family, the Bergmans, and Bob is the husband. The Baileys and the Bergmans become fast friends, and Bob even gets Ed a job at the dealership that he was a supervisor for. He works at Stafford Chevrolet. So Ed takes to the job like a duck to water, and Donna is thinking that things are improving. He's happier. She decided that she wanted to try to make things work and she stays. And he's improving so much that she even let him buy a gun because he wanted to go hunting. And Bob sells him one of his own guns. So September 20th, 1997, 
1996. Bob being the supervisor, he finds Ed on a smoke break. He needs him out on the floor, so he's kind of like, hey, put the butt out, let's get back to work. Well, Ed didn't really like that. And now we are back where we are in the storyline. We're back to September 24th, 1996. The Baileys get up and they get ready like it's any other day. Donna is at work when she gets a call from Ed and he's whispering, Donna, Donna, I shot Bob. She's like, what? I shot Bob. He says that he's still at the dealership. Donna immediately fucking goes to her boss and she's like, I got an emergency. I got to bounce. So she leaves work. On her way there, she's got this horrible feeling. So she stops at home and she finds the gun case empty on the bed. What Donna was told by police was that Ed got to work and Bob started in on him. Keep in mind, he's still pissed about the smoke break incident from Friday. So Bob is yelling at him. Ed leaves. He goes home. He gets his gun and he comes back to the dealership. He walks up on Bob and straight blasted on him. Bob died at the age of 29 and sadly he was three months away from his 30th birthday. Ed is arrested at the dealership and he is sentenced to 25 years in prison. She did end her story by saying that she regrets not moving away sooner. She did finally move away with her three boys and she feels guilty that she ruined their lives. They spoke to two of her three sons and they still love her and don't blame her and they had like a moment because the sons were hearing a lot of this for the first time. Well, I don't imagine it's something that just comes up in conversation or even if that you'd want to bring up. To finish this story, Ed Bailey was released from prison in July 2017. I don't have anything beyond that. I kind of, I did some looking, but I don't know where Donna moved to. Let's just leave Donna be. The real question is, is he, is he trying to sell cars again? I don't think he was a car dealer. He just worked at the dealership. I can't remember what they said he did there. Oh, what the hell else do you do there? Well, it's now October 4th, 1996, and it was a Friday. Sarah Hodgney and Jennifer Bolduck haven't shown up to their school, and none of their friends have heard from the two girls. That sounds like a really, like, badass cop duo. Okay, they were cheerleaders, and neither one showed up to the game that Friday night either. Sarah's parents were out of town, and the two girls were supposed to be staying at Sarah's house. Investigator, please do not make fun of this name. Investigator Bill Bean <laughs> was dispatched to do a welfare check on the girls that same night. Concerned family meets him at Sarah's house. He checks the property and then enters the house. He sees the girls cheer stuff in their bags and purses in the living room. He finds there is damage in the bathroom. There's a broken mirror and the soap dish is broken off the wall and the shower curtain is torn down. He calls for backup because he's suspecting foul play at this point. The bean needs backup. I repeat, the bean needs backup. Missing posters are going up immediately. The choppers are searching the area, but all the town knew was that they were missing and there were no other details being talked about. The town, again, is scared and this mistrust is sweeping over the area because there were so few details. And you know how people's mind play games and people go to worst case scenarios and you just think the most horrible things about people around you. The family car is also missing. Police are on the lookout for the girls and the car. They start setting up checkpoints sporadically around town, hoping to locate the car, a suspect, something. Well, 
all their fears would come to fruition again. This is when this town gets the moniker Village of the Damned by the media. And this moniker still haunts the town to this day. It took this long before they're like, we think something's up with this town. I'm I'm not sure what the body count is up to. I have my list here. Yeah, you teased we you had one. Then okay, you didn't hold tell on. Us. See, we got. We're gonna take a break. Scott Pace was the last one. At twelve people have died. These two girls make it fourteen. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot Bob Bergman. So this makes fifteen. The next two days, October fifth and sixth, the events play out over these two days. The timeline wasn't really defined. The stolen car is located in a parking lot at the Cortland Line Company in Cortland County, which is the neighboring county. Employees told police that they noticed a suspicious man in the parking lot yesterday wearing long yellow gloves and he was putting something into the trunk. Upon further inspection, the forensics of the car and the trunk, blood was found and doubts of the girls being alive are starting to rise. Also on the same day, investigator Bill Bean is at the house and he notices that cops posted to watch the house are drinking coffee. When he asks, where'd you get the coffee? They said, oh, a neighbor brought it over. Actually, all the neighbors have been over, you know, to see if we're okay, kind of maybe ask some questions, find out what they can kind of a thing. Needless to say, every neighbor has showed up to talk to the police, except one, one guy, the next door neighbor, John Andrews. The police see him like they turn and look at the house and they see him in the window and they see him kind of back out (laughs) as if on cue they're like everyone came over except for that guy of course this doesn't sit right with bill why is this guy acting so different why is everybody all talking to the police trying to ask questions and this guy isn't curious like everybody else So Bill questions John about his whereabouts, if he saw anything, you know, the typical gambit of questions. I have to say, if you watch this reenactment, the actor for John Andrews, this guy did this so well. I wanted to beat this guy because his, just his fucking ambivalence, his stoicness, there's, it's like, I just want to smack some fucking reaction out of this guy. Jesus. It sounds like you and the PD of this town. Why does this guy give a shit? So he says he doesn't know Sarah. And he just lived next door. He claims he was home with his wife that night. However, he admits that his wife stepped out and he stayed home. Police notice that his knuckles are scraped up during the interrogation. And when they ask about the gloves, he admits he's a machinist and he has work gloves. He isn't arrested at that moment, but he definitely makes the top of the suspect list. Well, they're doing some more digging into him and they find out this guy has a record. Not only was he dishonorably discharged, but he served three years, get a load of this shit, for breaking into a fellow airman's house with a ski mask on, and he attacks the dude's wife. She was able to pull the mask off during the attack. She identified him. He did three years, like I said, and then he, right after he did his three years, he moved back to Dryden, and then two years later, now here we are, he's being questioned in the missing person case of these two girls. So there's this other lady who lives in Dryden. Her name's Catherine. She gets a frantic call from her husband about something horrible that happened in their cabin about 30 miles east of Dryden. The cabin is remote. It's very wooded, very out of the way. She gets there. There is blood 
all over the place. They search the property, the pond, but they don't find any weapons. But a search of the area did turn up the girls' remains. They question Catherine, the property owner, and she tells police that this property has been in her family for years and that her family has access to this. And the only family that's living locally is her brother, John Andrews. Yes, the next door neighbor who doesn't know anybody and was home that night. October 7th, 1996, the next day after all of this stuff, John Andrews is arrested for the torturing and dismemberment of the two 16-year-old girls. He is cooperating with police. However, the evidence is telling them that he also sexually assaulted them. He chopped them up and then scattered their remains down several back roads. They also theorized that he had watched Sarah for a while because when they were in his house, they saw that he had like this perfect view into her house. He waited for her parents to be gone to attack her. The whole other girl, Jennifer, being there, that was just a complete and utter, you know, coincidence. He was just thinking it was going to be Sarah. It ends up attacking both girls. I feel that the reenactments are true to witness account. And when they arrest this guy and during the questioning, he just has this dull smugness. Like, yep, you got me, but he's just vacant. If you look up this guy's mugshots, you can even see it in his mugshots. He's just got this, yes, this punchable fucking face. (laughs) Going Rob Riggle right there. And like, Actually, I wrote here. All I just see is blah, blah, blah. I got a punchy McPunchers in face. There was just no remorse, no emotion, vacant. Jennifer and Sarah were buried side by side. So in the cemetery, and I'll show the visual aids of their two headstones, but they're buried next to each other because they would have probably wanted it that way. Still, so, I say it's a, it would have been a badass like cop duo team. Better names than Beano and Bean. Well, it's a couple weeks later. It's now October 31st. John Andrews was charged with first-degree murder, which carries a possible death sentence. November 2nd, just a few days later, John was found dead in his cell. What? He hung himself with his shoestring. He did not indicate that he was suicidal, so he wasn't put on any suicide watch, but he probably kind of kept that inside knowing he would be on suicide watch, so he just... He's he's the original Epstein? He did leave two letters, but there was nothing in the letters about the murder. All the details as to what happened are not known, and he will take that to the grave with him, unfortunately. All the police and residents can do is speculate and theorize from the few known facts and I don't know. I say we take that as an admission of guilt and we just kill him again anyway. I just take the body and draw and quarter it. The town gets a little bit of a break. So that was in 96. It was 1997. <laughs> no, it, they get a little more of a break than that. It's 1999, June 11th. Hey, good day. This is a story about Katie Savino and Katie was described. I have to say something here. The people who talk about the good people who died, like Scott's friends, Stephen and the cheerleaders, is just everybody they talk to just describe these people so amazingly that a lot of this was really hard to get through. 
Katie was described as full of life. The one coach they spoke to, her exact words was, she was a megawatt. So she just shined bright. She was a cheerleader and her smile was contagious. And like her cheermates, Jennifer and Sarah, she was widely loved. Katie graduated from Dryden High and she went off to college. She was on a break from college and was visiting back home when she unfortunately was killed in a car accident. And to finish up her little story, she was buried next to Jennifer and Sarah. So all three of them are together. So from December 23rd, 1989 to June 11th, 1999, that is a time span of nearly a decade, 17 people died from the hands of another self-inflicted and tragic accidents. They did speak to Brad Perkins, the town funeral director, and he made a statement that through all of this, that Dryden is a stronger town, but it has come at a tremendously high price. I do feel that is very, very true, that tragedy does have a way of bringing people together. I also think that the commonality of their pain brings them closer together. Being a small town, according to the Census Bureau, about that time frame, they were like twelve to 13,000 people. Being a small town, everyone knows everyone. And when one of those people die, it's a ripple effect. And the closest ones of the deceased are the impacted the hardest. But the people on the outer ripples, the ones that may not have known the deceased very well, they might not feel the pain and loss but they are still impacted with the fear and mistrust of their surroundings. The show Village of the Damned makes waves, and the town supervisor, Jason Leifer, he was very upset and offended with the title of the show, stigmatizing the town even more, and how the murders were sensationalized and what kind of image this would put on the current town of Dryden. Residents and city officials don't want the past brought back up. There is a lot of good about Dryden, but no one ever hears about that. So I leave you with this. I myself have never been to Dryden nor met any of these people, but I can say with a hundred percent certainty that, and I wrote this little poem about them, and it's, the community of Dryden has been rocked to its core time after time. What should have left them crumbling from the impact revealed an unexpected strength. Their town slogan is, we are one, and yes they are. They are one family strengthened by tragedy, their pain and loss made for an unbreakable togetherness. And with that, they are the epitome of what that one symbolizes, a coming together for something greater than them, all in the name of support and solidarity. To me, that speaks measures. And they may not be as bright and big as a lot of other cities, but knowing that a community has my back is so much more. There's depth beyond the surface here. What do you think, Evil? Man, uh, I feel like you need to come with something light for the next show. <laughs> Bit heavy today. I mean, we're kind of heavy every every episode. I mean, kind of, but you totally started out with saying exciting and uh, shit like that. And exciting like, because we have so many dead people over like a 10-year time span. And it's just, it, it's exciting because it's like, wow, this small space and these lightning strikes of tragedy just keep hitting the same tree over and over and over. It's like, how can this be? And it's kind of exciting to delve into the details of why this town, uh, I, there's no why. 
lightning strikes that many times in a matter of like 13,000 people. This is just the odds are astronomical. Like I said, this if the Von Erich family was a town, it would be this fucking town. Well, I hope I ended on a positive note that, yes, this show may have offended these people and sensationalized them, but I think it also showed them coming together in the name of support and solidarity. And I think that's one of the greatest positive things that have come from this, despite its roots being in tragedy. I think it's a good and bad thing that, like, they're quickly to be like, Oh, something's up with that one dude because he wouldn't come out and speak with the police and bring him like coffee and see what's going on kind of thing like but when you have this community togetherness and you have this it's kind of like in the edgar Allan poe story of mask of the red death all these people are partying and they got these smiling faces and it's all just jubilee and merriment and shit and there was that one face that wasn't smiling that wasn't happy and it was so noticed because it's just that that black toenail on a foot it just sticks <laughs> out i mean it it's it it was good and works out in this case not at all case i imagine like it's a quick could possibly be that quick to uh, judgment thing in other towns and stuff it just it worked out in the best way here definitely I, so on that note, yeah, thanks geez. for listening. What could you follow up with after this? Uh, we have some requests coming up. I can't remember what I'm going to go with next, but I've gotten some good ones. I was like, how, how are you going to leave the folks in suspense? They don't know what they're coming back to next week. What are they going to do? What are you going to do? You just have to stay tuned. Oh, you tease. Thank you for listening, and I will have my visual aids up on my Instagram and my Facebook at House, tissues. Housewife of Horrors. So this one was hard, and I apologize for getting emotional there. There was just some of this that was, it it hit close to home. On that note, you guys stay safe out there. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with some listener requests.